You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. And welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. On this week's show, we're first going to take a nosedive into the world of short-form improv, a place which even to an extrovert like me seems like the ninth circle of psychological hell. And later in the show, we'll return to a place with which I'm much more familiar, the inside of an art gallery, when Sega Browdis gallery curator and director Hannah Reeves joins me to talk about their new summer exhibit called Small World which opens tonight. But first, we're going to walk the psychological plank with three veterans of the stage and fearless leapers into the void, members of the brand-new short-form improv troupe The Ponies, who debut their prodigious talents tonight at Talking Horse Theatre. It is, of course, my delight to welcome Adam Bretsky, Gregory Brown and Audrey Abeta to the show. Welcome, everybody. Well, thank, thank you. <laughs> Gosh, I feel like I have a lot to live up to now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I can literally feel my insides start to knot up when I think about standing on a stage in front of an expectant audience with no script, no idea what's coming next, and the charge not only must I be entertaining, but also funny. (laughs) Why would you do that to yourself? Well, I understand that's exactly how I feel before every performance. So (laughs) my inside's not up. But the reason I did it is because I realized that I was in a rut. About two years ago, I started performing. And one day I was like, I'm going to terrify myself. And so I thought, let's do improv. That sounds like fun. Uh, I literally sat out inside of the parking lot before I went into auditions and was like, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. But I did it. And it's been fantastic. I mean, doing auditions and being in rehearsal is one thing because, you know, you're amongst friends standing in front of an audience, no matter how much you've rehearsed, much feel completely different. Oh, it absolutely does. It's much more fun to be in front of the audience because these people I know, I can fail miserably in front of an audience and they're like, oh, uh, I'm okay with that. (laughs) Is there a mindset you have to get into before you go on stage, Adam? You know, I think actually the best way to perform improv is to just clear your mind entirely. You know, the the best thing about improv comedy, unlike being on stage when you're playing a role, is that you can't make mistakes. Even if you get out there and you're not funny and it totally bombs, that then becomes the action for the scene. And really the only thing that you can do that can stop something is by taking no action. Absolutely. It's a lot like mindfulness, frankly. I mean, you just go into that space and you let the world unfold as it unfolds. So, Now, improv is very vogue in the world of comedy, especially yeah. long-form improv, which launched the careers of people like Will Ferrell, Tina Fey, Steve Carell, all of those people. Um, but for those who aren't familiar... Adam, explain the difference between long-form and short-form improv. Sure. So long-form improv comedy typically revolves around getting a a general idea and then building a character live on the spot. Short-form improv comedy probably is most famous for the television show Whose Line Is It Anyway? So it's basically based around a game show where you're going to have a lot of one-liners and a lot of quick thoughts. So our actors might inhibit a character for half a second and then pull back and then be another character two seconds later. Audrey, have you done both long form and short form? I've only done short form. So as an improv actor, is there a different skill set that you need for long form versus short form? 
Yeah, there is. You know, short-form improv comedy, you really have to think about getting to the end very quickly. Um, with long-form improv comedy, you can take a little bit more time to build up to a joke or a scene or your character development. With short-form, you have to really rely on facial expression, body motion, and then changing your voice to show, now I am somebody else. Uh, have you done both, Adam? Have you been done the Stable Boys as well? So I, I was in a Stable Boy show last September. They needed a special guest, so Mary Shaw and I, we, we guest starred with them. But I've done a lot of improv kind of growing up. Of course, I was uh, a theater major in college, and then I was also a member of the Skinny Improv in Springfield, Missouri. So we would do weekly shows that were both short form, so quick bits that you might see on TV, and then also we would do long form comedy where we would actually create whole sketches. Mm, I, I found this quote that said uh, another way to think of long form, it, it, it is to jazz as short form is to pop. Yeah, Does it that... is. That's, that's a great way to put it. <laughs> so you're just noodling around when it's, when it's long form and short form, you've got to get to the point in three minutes. So um, the grandmother of improvisational theatre is Viola Spolin, who in the 1930s and 40s developed a programme of theatre games which would help to unlock a person's capacity for self-expression and creativity. And her son, Paul Sills, went on to become the first director for Second City in Chicago. Mm -hmm. But her big takeaway was that improv should never be competitive. Right. It isn't about who gets the biggest laugh out of the audience. She said that the excitement should come from extending oneself and that it was vital to overcome the approval-disapproval syndrome, which is rooted in our need to please others, which, of course, we all have. But that <laughs> seems like it's easier said than done. How do you teach that? So it really is about we are not being stars. There are no stars in improv. There are people who have, we may have starring moments, and we have, may, may have those individual moments that are fantastic, and they're hilarious, and we're like, oh, that's amazing. But it's always, I've got your back. If Audrey's doing something, I'm listening very closely mm -hmm. to what she's saying. I'm reacting in the moment, and that's really what we try to teach people, uh, teach the cast members is all about let's not pre-plan we can't direct we can't coach we can't say it's going to go this way and by golly there's no other way that it can go mm -hmm. and we have to be improving uh, in the moment improving our improv uh, improving our improv constantly so so i mean it is just learning through doing it is absolutely learning through doing the only way that you can do this is like doing push-ups you've got to get down and you've got to do them and you put in the reps and sometimes things are hilarious and some things well i just powered through that one more time so right and the idea of the, the theatre games is to give actors, you said, a, a technical problem so that your brains are preoccupied with the focus of the game, so that intuitive thought arrives spontaneously and you don't get overwhelmed by thinking ahead or, or making, like you're saying, making decisions about your verbal choices. But how does that truly happen? Do you kind of do a little meditation before you go on stage? to clear your mind we do a lot of warm-ups you know there's there's things that we do like we count to 10 as a group and we all close our eyes and we don't look at each other and just try to count one through 10 without overlapping each other or without talking at the same time uh, which is much harder than you might think but really I think the mindset for good improv actors is to kind of turn your brain on to the idea of yes and so whatever my scene partner says, I'm just going to go with it, even if it's a totally different direction. 
you know, I just sat in for auditions for our, our next show in August, Dancing Lessons. And one of the things I observed is that there's a lot of people that come in thinking that, okay, I have to be a specific type. This role is this type, and I don't know if I fit that type. With improv, you can throw all of that out the window. You can be whatever type you want. And so as an actor, that's incredibly freeing. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. you can be an action hero or you can be a tiny little mouse. It doesn't matter. Whatever somebody throws at you, you can become that and then discover something new about yourself. And that the yes and is you know, probably the most famous rule of improv. Most people right. can quote that. But in short form improv, are there, again, are there different rules than long form? Are there some other of those yes and type things that you need to know for short form improv? Probably the biggest thing is to give the audience what they want. So if you are leading a scene and you started out saying that you're in a cupcake factory, the audience wants to see some cupcakes. You can't just immediately (laughs) change it to a dinosaur stomping the store and never give the audience their cupcakes. Another major thing is to ensure that you are, you're beginning in the middle. You're not beginning at the beginning and saying, hey, how are you? My name's Sam. You're not doing all that uh, preparatory stuff. It's, hey, this is, we're in the bagel factory and they're coming down the conveyor belt at 50 miles an hour. Uh, And oh my gosh, they're like hockey pucks and I've just had an injury. Oh my God. So. (laughs) So like you were saying earlier, like you just psych yourself up to go in. Does this feel like a kind of therapy for everybody? Does it, does it help you? become a different person in the real world absolutely <laughs> you can't nod you have to say yeah no absolutely, yeah absolutely which i will you know you mentioned the nerve-wracking aspect of it but i think that's the fun thing about doing improv right is that unless you are not adhering to yes and or you're not giving the audience what they want you really can't mess it up and there's something really freeing about that as long as you're being cooperative with your scene mates and Right, it gets you comfortable looking like an idiot sometimes. Like you're you're going to look like an idiot on purpose because it'll be funny and on accident because that just happens. And that translates into the real world where we look like idiots sometimes in the real world and you're you've had experience with that and you know it's not the end of the world and you just kind of carry on with it and it's okay. And in the real world, you know, we all have those moments where we think, Oh, I wish I'd said yep. X. Mm-hmm. Do you have the same thing in improv? Do you try and not dwell on it? Yeah. Yeah. Dang, I should have said blah blah. (laughs) But it is amazing. I mean, I work in a in an executive uh, role uh, at the at the Cerner organization. Well, well, sorry, can I brand that? (laughs) But anyway, uh, it is amazing how much it has changed me. Because used to I would wait and I would I would not uh, I would listen and I would hear. But now I jump in and I make my opinions and what I would like to know heard. But while listening and, and being flexible enough to hear what other people are saying, so it's really about using applied improvisation and helping people to grow and learn that, yes, and it's not a competition, it's a collaboration. Mm-hmm. We can all win. How many of you, you would you say, are introverts in the group? <laughs> yes, I am. I'm not. You're an extrovert. Oh, I'm certainly an extrovert. You're an extrovert. But, you know, a little known fact about me, and I don't know how vulnerable I want to be on the radio here, but... uh, It's just us. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I I used to really suffer from very bad anxiety. In fact, I would stay home a lot of times if I thought there was going to be a crowd of people just because I didn't want to put myself out in a situation where I was going to have to make a lot of small talk. Mm -hmm. And improv to me is incredibly freeing because now I'm like, well, if I can do a scene where I pretend I'm a rabbit looking for my lost foot, then I can do any small talk Mm -hmm. conversation. 
<laughs> Audrey, you grew up in California and you were the only girl on your high school improv yes. team. So obviously you love this form of entertainment. I what, do. What is it that keeps you coming back for more? Um, that's a great question. So part of it is is that I have always had a brain that goes on tangents and conversations and goes weird places and often leaves my conversational partners a little confused and improv is a place where that's that's a good thing now it's not something that I feel sort of anxious or embarrassed about like that actually works really well in improv so that's really nice to have a spot where that feels good but you know I think like Adam and Greg have been saying it's it forces you out of your comfort zone and it just makes you a lot more comfortable in yourself um and that's a feeling that you can really get used to as you've gotten used to it and you know you spend time every week hanging out with a bunch of weird funny people and that's really hard not to keep coming back to um, that just brings a lot of fun into your life that I think we often miss out on as adults. Do you think a tangential brain is a key component to be a good improv actor? I think it certainly helps. <laughs> That's ADD. Can't hurt. But, yeah. yeah. Well, got that too. So. Yeah. <laughs> so after a show is done, um, do you do you have an agreement just to walk away and what happens on stage stays on stage, or do you kind of do a post mortem afterwards and? Being that this is our first show, we, we will have some sort of post-mortem talk about what went well and what didn't go well, because this is our first time coming out. Mm -hmm. And so we we are really just throwing it all at the wall and seeing what sticks here. I mean, much like the attitude of improv comedy, this is a totally new format for us. We are trying some new games that we've only played once or twice before and with some brand new people that really started improv comedy about two months ago. Okay. So there's going to be a lot to discuss after this show, and we're going to continue to build to make an even better show. The thing is, Diana, we are incredibly supportive of one another, mm -hmm. and there are a couple of games that we play, warm-ups that won't, the audience won't see, that we, and the intention is to fail miserably. And what <laughs> we do after someone has failed miserably, we applaud wildly because they have taken the chance mm -hmm. and have put themselves out there and that's exactly what we're looking for right it seems like you know i maybe i'd like to do it if it was just a form of therapy and i didn't have to actually go on stage yeah. like maybe you could have like a ponies beta version and i could just okay. you know, <laughs> sure. yeah. hang yeah. out but not actually have to get on stage <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, Gregory, you and I took a Meisner Technique acting class back at the end of last year, which was really fascinating. And I'm wondering what you learned from that, what you took away that has helped your improv. Or did your improv skills help your Meisner acting technique? So the acting class was amazing, and you are an amazing person. You really should act on stage. Oh, thank I, you very I adore much. you. <laughs> but, but and I, Gregory. Well, absolutely. <laughs> so what it helped me to. It, if you get lost in a scene, you always come back to the last thing you remember, and you go to that repetition because you can heighten something and make it even funnier and make it more intense. So it's the Meisner, uh, one of the first exercises that we did was basically, I am observing you, and I am repeating what you're saying, and I am, I am there with you in that moment, and we're not considering anything else. And that's really a lot like improv. It was there, both very complimentary, the Meisner technique as well as short-form improv, in that you have to be in the moment, and if you get lost, you just bring it back and you start again and you keep going and it builds and it gets better and better and better. Mm -hmm. I think it's that idea, that spoiling idea of this isn't competitive because it feels like from the outside that it would be everybody's going for like who can get the biggest laugh but mm -hmm. from the inside that was kind of a revelation when I read that that this is not supposed to be competitive and it is just about self-extension. Mm -hmm. Right. So I guess Absolutely. That's so Adam, if you had to give up either improv or acting, which oh, one would gosh. you choose? <laughs> Because you're such a fine actor. Oh, well, thank you very much. I, I'll like, <laughs> wow. Uh, you know, it's 
it's really hard to say because I go into a different mindset for, for both. You know, I love improv for the, the therapeutic value, as you mentioned, and because I get to be so many different characters mm-hmm. in a night. But then I also just really love the deep dives that I get with acting and becoming a character. If you had a gun to my head and I had to choose, I would I would take improv comedy over anything else because then I get to be whoever I want to be. <laughs> um and everybody has to come along with me. <laughs> it's such, I mean, it must be an absolute core component of any acting um, degree or course or class that if mm-hmm. you, you have to be able to do improv to act, I would imagine. It's oh, such absolutely. A- well, and, you know, a lot of what I think you talk about in the Meisner technique is that the core of developing any character, whether it's a quick second character you're developing for improv or a character that you're going to hold throughout the entire show is figuring out what they want and then doing everything in the scene or in the play to serve that want. Right, and Meisner, I mean, the, the key was when you walk on the stage, if you if you are supposed to be afraid, you need to have pre-thought about the last time that you were afraid and you bring right. that fear with you. Mm-hmm. So you step on the stage with all those emotions just raised and ready to go. But in improv, I mean, you're on the stage all the time. You right. don't have, you know, five minutes off stage to think about how you felt last time you were scared. Right. You just got to step right into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of time it's just that quick retrieval of taking those Meisner techniques and saying, okay, I don't have five minutes before the curtain goes up to be afraid i have to be afraid now so what's the last scary thing that happened to me oh this right now oh god yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) so there are 14 people in the ponies and you held auditions early this year tell me about the audition process what were you looking for i'd like to hear from audrey on this one because i don't know (laughs) i saw it from one side i'd like to hear it from hers um okay so as someone on the the auditioning side of the auditions in a lot of ways, I mean, it's a lot like our practices. You know, you come in and you play games, and there's more of us in auditions than there are in practices, but a lot of the same principles are kind of holding true in that, right, you're trying to you're trying to show that I can be a cooperative team member, and I don't, yes, I can be funny, but I also know when I shouldn't be stepping on other people's toes because that's not going to help the scene. Um, so I think auditioning for improv is, I mean, I love auditioning in general, but auditioning for improv is a little more free-flowing than auditioning for a show kind of traditionally and it's it's more fun because it's just like you know whether no matter how this goes I'm going in here with a bunch of funny people and we're going to play games and at the end of those couple of hours even if I don't make it into this troupe like I've played games with some funny people and that's been a really nice way to spend you know a Sunday morning so I think it's a more it's a more comfortable audition process because you're not doing as much sitting around and waiting. You're just, you're up and you're active and you're doing something that's kind of fun and getting you out of your head. And Gregory, I mean, you're the manager of the Pony. So we, in, in auditions, were you just kind of sitting there watching people? So Adam and I actually co-founded this, so we're, we're co-managers. But what I was looking for were people who were making bold, interesting choices. Uh, they didn't necessarily have to be funny, but they it helped if they were funny. But looking for people who had interesting choices rather than something that was just, uh, you know, just, just mediocre. And I'm not saying that there was no one that was mediocre. Every, we had a really hard time uh, winnowing it down to 15 people because everyone that we had was just amazing in auditions. But really, it was all about seeing who was willing to jump in and be vulnerable and make fools of themselves mm-hmm. on stage uh, and be willing to jump in and be the person then. 
Okay, so there are, there are a myriad of different game forms, yes. uh, in short form, that you can utilise. Games like World's Worst, mm-hmm. World's Worst Walmart Greeter, or World's Worst <laughs> Ice Cream Flavour, or World's Worst American Sportscaster commentating on cricket. I might put that into the hat. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, and we will be experts even on things we have no clue what you're talking about. So. <laughs> Just like an American sportscaster. Yep. Broadcasting <laughs> Sports ball. Yay, English. <laughs> um, then there's Highlander, which, Audrey, I noticed was your favorite game. Highlander. Stunt Double, which, of course, is your favorite game because yes. you teach um, choreography, <laughs> stage fighting. And Foursquare, which is your favorite, Graham Gregory. So let's play a little game here. I know you prepared something for me. Great. So yeah. this is going to be a game called Let's Make a Date. Yeah. So this game, uh, it's very popular on the show, Whose Line Is It Anyway? But uh, we're going to do kind of a smaller version of it. Diana, you're going to be our dating game contestant. And we've brought two bachelor bachelorettes for you that you can ask some dating questions to. Before the show, I slipped them uh, some a sheet with a character on it. So every answer is going to exhibit some traits of their character. But you can ask them anything that you'd like. Let's uh, Let's start with you asking a question of Gregory here. Gregory, how would you dispose of a body? How would I dispose of a body? Well, I would cut it up into little pieces and spread it thinly but evenly on a piece of bread. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, next, Bachelorette. Yes. How, how would you, how how you would dispose, I dispose of a body? Um, well, I can promise you I certainly have no expertise that would give me any knowledge on how I should dispose of a body. I've never been in any situation where I would have to dispose of a body and I I really I just can't even imagine how you would do that okay <clears throat> question number two I'm a kumpunophobic I don't like buttons what gives you the creeps bachelor number one what gives me the creeps um hard breads uh, with especially with those little seeds they just really that freaks me out uh, i just can't deal with something that i have to slice that makes that horrible grating noise so yeah yeah hard bread Ugh. hard hard bread with seeds in it <clears throat> and you like spreading things on bread okay <laughs> a bachelorette yes um so probably the first thing I can think of that would give me the creeps is small rooms that maybe are dimly lit by just a single bulb overhead. There might be, oh God, there might be a metal table. Uh, someone might sit against uh, across from me and ask me a lot of questions that would make me uncomfortable. That really freaks me out to think about that sort of room. Uh, Russian creeps me out. Uh, <laughs> Russian? Y- yeah, radio transmitters. <laughs> Uh, those are probably my biggest fears. Okay, you don't like being questioned in a small room about things that have got to do with Russia. Okay, um, okay, I may ask this question first to Bachelorette. Um, okay. Which superpower would you choose and why? Uh, which superpower would I choose? I, I think that I would, I would love to be able to blend in in any sort of uh, social situation or culture I might find myself in. Um, I, I really hate to stand out in a crowd. And yeah, I would just like to be sort of a chameleon wherever I am. So I draw absolutely no attention from anybody who might have interest in me. It's a kind of invisibility. Yes. Okay. Bachelor number one. Oh, absolutely. I would grant the power to everyone in the world if I had this superpower to make no one gluten-free, uh, allergic <laughs> to gluten, or to make them peanut allergies. I mean, those are gone. That would be a living dream. Oh, wow. I would love that. Okay, Diana, do you have 
any clue who these people are? Let, let's start with Gregory. Any guesses? Well, I think he's a baker. Okay. Is, is, there, is it a specific baker? He owns a specific restaurant that uh, maybe serves one specific thing. Um, um, he's a patisserie. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'm going to give it to you. That's good. <laughs> so, Gregory, why don't you tell her what you were? I own the the most fabulous restaurant that only serves peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I am a gourmand. <laughs> and I think you were putting the pieces together for Audrey. Can you say what you think Well, I she think is? you're a spy. Yes. Um, maybe a Russian spy. Okay. Yeah, we'll give you that. What is she afraid of? Being caught. Yes. Jeez. That's exactly it. Great. <laughs> so you yes. are good at improv. No, you, no, you're good at improv. I'm just good at guessing. <laughs> and so that's a tiny version of one of the games that we're going to play tonight. Uh, we will have, I mean, we've got a, a stacked deck of games that we'll be doing tonight. Um, we're going to start at 6 o'clock for First Fridays. Uh, best part about this is people can come and go as they want. So we're trying something a little different for this showing. So first Friday is six till nine. That's you're right. calling it a drop in, drop out performance. Yeah, that's so right. So you you're gonna go on stage at six, whether there's anybody in the audience or not. Yep. And then people can just come by. And if they come by in the middle of a three minute set, they'll just wait and then they'll be ushered in. That's right. After each game we're gonna open the doors so people can come, come in, enjoy a couple of games, or they can stay as long as they want. The best thing is with first Fridays, it's very fluid. So we want people to be able to see all the art that they want to see, but then also have something to do when they need a break. So they can come down for five minutes, half an hour, or the full three hours. That's right. And it's also pay what you can. So if you stay for a game or two, our suggested minimum is $5 per person. But if you stay longer, feel free to tip us more. That's how we continue. Do you pay on the way in or on the way out? On the way out. <laughs> okay. Okay. So a suggested donation of $5, but you know, do feel free to pay more if you stay there longer. So I was thinking, you know, could you give me a little bit of homework so that I'm prepared? So what kind of things can I prep for tonight? Oh. Oh, we got some good ones. So we need, we're going to have things that you can write on. So think of your best quotes or lines okay. from movies or anything mm -hmm. else. We also need examples of world worst, as you mentioned before. Uh, and then my personal favorite, scenes from a hat, which is a lot like uh, world's worst, but then you can come up with anything you want. So it could be things you can say to your dog, but not your partner. Uh, those types of things. <laughs> and Highlander, is there any prep that we need to do for that? Or that's all completely within your group? <laughs> You'll see. <laughs> now, will will all the performances be on first Friday? Most of them will be. Um, that's how we're going to start out. We'll probably add some more traditional showings uh, later on. But for right now, we're planning on most first Fridays. Okay, so it'll be a monthly performance, and you can if, if the drop in drop out works, and that'll be the the format that you continue with. Exactly. Okay. And if it fails miserably, we'll applaud wildly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to Adam Bretsky, Gregory Brown, and Audrey Abeta. The Pony's first ever drop-in, drop-out improv show is at Talking Horse Theatre tonight from 6 till 9pm. All of the Pony's first Friday shows will be on a pay-what-you-can basis with a suggested donation of $5. Um, I should also say that the next Stable Boys improv shoot, which is long form, is yes. on July the 20th. So, you know, this month you get to do a little bit of both. That's right. Thank you all so much. Thanks for Thank having you. us. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, I'll be chatting to Hannah Reeves, director and curator at Sega Browdis Gallery, about their new art exhibit that also opens tonight. Back in a mo. 
Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. I'm delighted to welcome my second guest back to the show, as I always learn so much every time we chat. Hannah Reeves has been the director and curator of the Sega Brothers Gallery for over three years. And before that, she was the director of the Bingham Gallery on the MU campus, a job which introduced her to the idea of art curation as a similarly creative effort as making art. When she's not at the gallery, she's either working in her own home studio or running her two and a half acre homestead near Hallsville with its menagerie of hens, ducks, goats, rabbits and dogs. She and her husband grow food for their family, cultivating a large garden, a hayfield and an orchard and some mushrooms. Somehow she also finds time to make her own art, which will be on display in the gallery's October exhibit, as well as a few small works in the show that opens tonight, which is why we're here, mostly at least. Small Works is the July exhibit at the gallery in which over 60 artists present over 240 artworks that are 8 inches by 8 inches or smaller and all are priced at $500 or less in many cases much less Hannah Reeves welcome back to the show Hi, thank you so much for having me back so the first thing that occurs to me when I think about 240 plus small artworks in the gallery is to wonder how much math went into the layout (laughs) as I know you're all extremely meticulous about layout and spacing so how much work was it getting that many works onto the walls we knew it was going to be a long day we almost made it a two-day install but we're very very efficient and we're all about efficiency so we do it all in one day we took down the beautiful June exhibit at the start of the day um, last Monday you know we turn the room into a blank slate and then we get to hang in and really so we we did groupings that are salon style um, where we keep the two or three or four works made by each artist together in a grouping so that people can compare or maybe even in some cases consider buying the whole set which I think is what will happen Um, those are grouped together but then those groupings are also grouped Um, We did decide on a spacing that was going to be the exact spacing between artworks throughout the gallery. And there was so much math. Um, I was there for 14 hours that day, so it really should have been two days. Um, But I'm so pleased with how it looks. I can't believe you did it all in a day. That's just huge. It's, you know, it's kind of like carrying in all the groceries and just like refusing to make two trips and you just jam all the bags on your arm. Like, it's just like, we just can't quite bring ourselves to, like, we can do this. We can do it in a day. I love how you recently, in the last few shows, you've you've really gone to extraordinary measures in, in the layout. Like sometimes you've painted the walls, you have the labeling on the walls. It just looks so spectacular. But I mean, it's so much more work for every show that you do. There's thought that goes into it, but really if you're, go- you're going to do some work anyway to label work, to label artwork to give people the information that they need. And, you know, ultimately we do want to sell artwork, so we want to present it well. And we're going to, we're going to put the nails on the wall anyway. I would rather do the thought ahead of time and make sure that it is, you know, kind of spectacular. Right. Yes, you're putting nails on the wall too. So when you take a show down, are you patching all the walls before you put it? Yeah, we do all of the the takedown, pull all the nails, patch and paint, blank slate, you know, vacuum floors, lay everything out. And we really, yeah. So you've been close to all of this week. We had well, so we actually opened on Tuesday and Wednesday, knowing that we would be closed for the holiday on the fourth. We called Tuesday and Wednesday preview days for this exhibit. We knew that there were people really chomping at the bit to shop, and so we did have people. Is there anything left to buy? Yeah, there are a few things, (laughs) but there were actually there were quite a few sales earlier this week. Yeah. 
So I've only ever been on the curatorial side of the art world. I've never made art. But so I'm always curious to find out how shows come together and the choices that curators make about placement, like what mm -hmm. works a group together, and the journey that a visitor takes through the show. You know, it's, it is kind of like putting a big jigsaw puzzle together. Yeah, and it, it, really is, is. it is fun, mm -hmm. but it's also just a little nerve-wracking. When, you, when you're looking at that blank slate and you have 240 works just sitting there and you're not quite sure what's going to go where. And there's no, it's not like a jigsaw, there's no box lid to look at. There's no <laughs> right, there's no right <laughs> answer. Um, so what considerations do you take into account when you start with a blank slate or blank walls? Do you think about mm -hmm. the journey that a visitor takes and do you kind of direct them when they definitely, come in? Definitely, definitely, yeah. We have those modular walls that we can hang on tracks throughout the gallery. And so I think first about how I'm going to lay out the room and what impact that will make when people walk in the door. Um, and so I arrange the walls and the furniture on a map ahead of time. For this show, for this show, something that I did um, was because there was such a large volume, instead of saying, like I normally do, these pieces go on this wall and so on, um, I said, okay, we have 277 pieces. This many are, I think there were, yeah, over 240 that were wall pieces. If I designate sections of wall that are about eight feet, then roughly this many pieces go in a section so then once we so we actually brought all of the hundreds of works laid them in the middle of the floor and made little pathways that we could walk through um and it just took up the entire middle of the floor of the gallery and then we all worked together to pull okay we're gonna pull mary Jo o'gara's over here oh yeah and then let's put so if we put those white framed pieces there then let's pull this set by lita kenyon over on this other side and really just started to spread them out and give some visual balance to the room when I was at the Art League, Jennifer Perlow and Amy Meyer were my layout sisters for yeah. so many years. And we'd meet up on a Sunday afternoon and we'd try and work out where to place, usually around 100 works, mostly by 100 different artists, all of whom had different styles, different medias. They used different mats and different frames. I mean, there was no cohesion. And we'd try and find the harmony and the cohesion mm -hmm. and the walkthrough. And there'd always come a point where somebody would have to have put together a whole wall of works and one of us would either vehemently disagree <laughs> or we'd steal a piece because we needed it to complete our wall. <laughs> so it's a really subjective process and you mm -hmm. work with a lot of very artistically smart people at mm -hmm. Sega Brothers Gallery. How do you reach a consensus? Does someone is someone in charge? I, I, I guess I kind of make the final call. Sometimes I defer to Jolt, but we, we are such a good team. I have to say, like, we have similar but still kind of diverse tastes. Like, we will have different opinions, but we have a way of sort of working together that serves this overall style of the gallery. And we do that when we curate shows. Like, when we went to Chicago last month and picked out the works for the Masters exhibit. You know, we looked at a thousand pieces and we, we kind of get this consensus. Yes? No? Maybe, okay, set aside, yes, yes, you know. And we don't always all have to agree, but we can land really, really well. So before we put any nails in the wall, we land on a final layout. And actually for these, because they were these salon-style groupings, they were asymmetrical sometimes, and I wanted some groupings to be like one painting above another, some would be like in a grid. I laid them all out on the floor and double-checked, you know, right. every layout on the floor before any nails went in the wall. Um, so I guess I'm kind of the, I'm more just the, like, final double-checker. <laughs> yeah, the nails but. in the wall really alter things. I mean, we just had rods and hooks, so we could, if oh, we changed yeah, our mind, we could just change the hooks around. But, I mean, yeah. you're committing to a hole in the wall. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes you have to patch some of those. That, that happens. It happened a few times Monday. <laughs> 
So you're 60 plus artists who are in the show and they're all artists who are represented by the gallery, but I'm sure there are many more than 60 artists. So how did you amass these 240 artworks? Yeah, part of the project of the show is actually showcasing um, the diversity and just the volume of artists that we carry. Because when people walk into a typical monthly exhibit, there are five artists on the wall. So five artists presenting each a whole body of work. And that kind of doesn't always tell people all at once how much we actually carry and do and how much variety there is. Um, So it's all under the umbrella of the style and really high quality work, but it's quite diverse. So we actually, right now, we represent um, people who are showing through 2019, 138 living artists. And I emailed every single one of them. I just emailed them all. and said, would you want to do this? This was a couple of months ago. Would you want to do this small works exhibit? And I didn't know. Maybe it would be 10. That would be fine. And then we could take more work. I had no idea. But they were so enthusiastic about it. And so we heard back from about 70, you know, over half. A few people had to kind of pull out. I think we ended up with, in the end, it's 66 of the artists that we carry presented work. And so we just said, we trust you. Um, We already represent your work if you want to make something new if you want to send something from your studio it just has to be smaller than eight by eight under five hundred dollars retail and you can send one to four pieces and they delivered right so some some people seem to have five or six there are some that have a few more and there's some that only have one yeah we hung a maximum of four in the room okay so there were a couple of people that as long as they were shipping they're like why don't i just make sure like from out of state why don't i just make sure you have on hand a couple if you sell them off the wall then you can replace them and so on the website you will find a couple of people who are some of our out-of-state artists who might have six listed but they have four in the room and so one sells (laughs) and then you might change it out yeah we can do that so why eight by eight and not like 12 by 12 or 10 by 10 or is it just a random choice yeah we wanted it to really feel small I guess and so we played with that a lot and felt like that would be workable and it would actually allow for some price diversity because our artists are all different places in their careers and some people in order to sell a $500 retail piece, it might have to be like two inches by two inches to fit into like the scheme of their pricing. And we want to respect that, but kind of go up to a size where it feels, yeah, it feels comfortable maybe for something to be $500 and be eight by eight. We wanted a little bit of like scalability there and for our artists to be able to consider that, but we really wanted them to feel small. So that was where we landed. And it is, I guess it's technically eight by eight by eight or small because there's a lot of sculptural work too. There is something very compelling about small artworks and I'm not quite sure what it is, but for me, it's something akin to um, that idea of the whispered voice. I think it's called ASMR or something. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like that. It kind of makes you want to lean in, like small works kind of whisper to you. So that's what's mm-hmm. compelling to me about them. What What do you love about small works? I like to work small myself. And for the pieces that I made for this show, um, I wanted to actually think of them as objects and think about what it means for someone to um, like want or collect or like hang on to a small object. And so I made little multimedia kind of drawings, but I kind of pushed them into objecthood and was thinking about preciousness and like cameos and things that like go in a jewelry box. And that's intriguing to me. But I'm sure each artist has a different kind of way of thinking about it and for some you know 
it may be harder than others. For some people, you know, the small scale is always a study. And we do have some pieces that feel they're fully painted and they're fully finished, but they are studies for larger pieces, which is okay too. There's, there are a variety of mindsets, I think, about it. But I agree. I, for me, I think that there is like a reward given to a viewer for like close looking. You know, it makes them come closer and then you reward them because there are more details. It feels like you're having your own intimate moment with mm-hmm. an artwork. Yeah, intimacy is a really good leaning, word for it. So yeah. close into it. Yeah, now, I for agree. some artists, I mean, working small is quite a challenge. I'm thinking yeah. of, you know, you have some pieces by Metro Mitchell, who works, you know, pretty big usually. And so mm-hmm. how challenging is it if you are used to working at a large scale to suddenly be scaling it all down? Yeah, to different a- brushes. Like, I mean, yeah, different substrates sometimes. Yeah. I, I do think it, it, it can be a challenge for somebody working really large. I will say Mitra makes meticulous studies. So she has sketchbooks filled of basically every size of square that you can think of there's a version of each of these characters that she paints probably at that size um so she does a lot of the the, like eight by eight studies these are beautiful by the way i'm guessing these are four of the works that are already sold I know two even on the website. Two of Mitra's are gone. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, she can just sell things without even showing up. I mean, everybody <laughs> just true. wants her work. So I want to talk a little bit more about your work. Um, you talk about how art for you is an intellectual pursuit. It's a research project, a therapy, and a product which brings you joy. And I wondered what is most important to you: the process of art making or the end product? Hmm. That's. That's challenging. It's always a balance. I think I actually have to sort of turn on and off parts of my brain in order to do to think about both of those things. And so it's been challenging, actually, even more so since I've been at Sacred Broadus Gallery thinking about because in my daily life, I think about what artwork sells and the way in which viewers come in and shop for it. And of course, also how they connect with it, which is very related to that. But that's hard to turn off like I know that now and so I know and I but I don't want to cater to that just like I don't want to cater that as a curator I want quality work and sometimes I want to actually push the audience to learn that they like something that they didn't know I don't want to just say like oh I know what they like and let's just show that so but also as an artist you know I want to turn off that knowledge of what people will immediately want to buy not that I can just like make things that will sell but you know have some kind of like this little background knowledge about that I want that type of criticism turned off I want the type of criticism that starts to sort of pick apart the final product turned off while I'm still in process and making studies Um, and then you know I want to complete a whole lot of work and then I want to turn it back on really effectively and edit what I've made and I'm getting a little better at that but that's actually really challenging because both it's always like both are so important we were just talking in the last segment about improv and how how the key to improv is turning off that approval oh, yeah. disapproval process which i'm sure is exactly the same between process and end product yeah you don't want to think about approval or disapproval when you're in that process it's about the experience it's about the research it's about the intellectual pursuit of what you're trying to say with this work or... and it's experimental right and to experiment you have to try a lot of things many of which will fail so you have to be allowed to fail right part of it. trial and error is a crucial yeah. part of art Definitely. And so, yeah i often wonder about when i go into you know fine art galleries around the world and you see not great works by famous people on the wall and how mortified they may be if they saw what was now gracing the walls of museums it really was just one of their trial and error pieces. their sketchbook pages yeah. and these things are very famous yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
would really be awful. Um, I've talked to two authors in the past couple of weeks who both said that they write organically, that they don't often know how the book will end or what characters will come to the fore. Do you always know what your end product's going to be when you start out? Uh, yes, for a show, yeah, I do. Like, I wouldn't... I won't start making, like, this body of work for October um, until I have everything studied, practiced, and decided. And not everybody does that, like, certainly. And I think there are even some people who would argue that that kind of stales the work, if I can use that as a verb. Um, it does... I don't think that it does for me. I think I need... Basically, I'm getting some of that like meticulous stuff out of the way and even like preparing my surfaces and cutting the fabrics and everything is like cut to size and all of that is sort of mapped out. And then all of my tools and supplies are at my fingertips and then I can sort of enter this flow state and really make the the drawings or the paintings or do the stitching. Um, But all of that prep work helps me to get into that state and that's kind of in effect like your final edit you've you've yeah. decided what you're going to do but when you're working on a, a new body of work and you're not quite sure it's you're experimenting with a new material oh, or a new sure. process then that's where I am now <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like oh I have no idea we did a, cr- a critique group with um you know we're all artists that work at the gallery and so they were kind enough to look at some of the work in process and give me some really great feedback about direction but I brought some things that I had finished for the small work show thinking like this might be a direction these are more finished I brought some things that were like halfway made and not even halfway made to say like ah I don't know you know I don't know I don't have the critic turned on for this right now um and what feedback did you get I got a really great idea about direction um you know my work often relates to loss and sometimes death and grief and that can be morbid but I don't I don't need it to be I don't you know I don't want need to be like over the top and goth about it but those are important ideas and so I got some really great direction about some subject matter that can treat um, ideas about loss and like acceptance of death without um, you know being a Victorian death portrait for example which is what I was going to ask you about because that was a recent body of work where you looked at Victorian post mortem portrait so tell us about that and how that all began i'm so fascinated by those and also by like many victorian measures for um like memorializing things and remembering things mainly i just think it's this very like human desire to hang on to something that is lost or about to be lost and making a post-mortem portrait so sometimes you know when photography was kind of young Sometimes people had not ever had a portrait made, say, of a child. And then a lot of people die young, you know, in the era. And so someone dies and they've never had a portrait made. This is their literal last chance to have that memorial of that person. Now, you know, if you have a million photos of someone that that serves that purpose. And I do, I am still interested in those snapshots and like the photos that people hang on to and how they hang on to them. But in the Victorian era, you know, you might have this one portrait and if the person just died, this is literally your last chance. So the desperation in that is just, it's kind of like the far end of a spectrum about um, wanting to memorialize. And so I like kind of going all the way there and thinking about that and then what it tells us about how we all want to hold on to 
things that are only going to exist in our memory now. They're not like tangible to us anymore. And the one that seems the most macabre is when children die. And mm-hmm. so they would prop the children up, keep their eyes open, yeah. dress them up and make them look like they were still living so that they had a living memory of that. Yeah, sometimes with, posed with their living siblings and you have to look closely to see who is on a stand with their eyes propped open. You know, they would pose things in their arms or sometimes a mother would hold, you know, a deceased infant and they would drape the mother as if she was a chair so that she's like holding up the baby. It looks like the baby's sitting in the chair. I mean, it is just bizarre and fascinating and I, I realize that it's morbid, but it's just this act of tender desperation that is so intriguing to me it to us it does seem like the victorians had a kind of macabre fascination with death but do you think that maybe their attitude was healthier towards death than I think it, it was today? more accepting yeah i actually i think um there were certainly there were so many taboos and that's kind of interesting too but death wasn't one of them in the same way that it is now there was a little bit of acceptance um and maybe it just occurred so much more frequently that someone would die young um and maybe so that like the denial that we all kind of like have about our own mortality could uh, that would be a little bit more present all the time maybe and that changes the viewpoint but that's interesting to me too because why do we get to what how can we just like turn that you know turn the denial on right um so you asked your friend to model as a deceased victim yeah. <laughs> deceased Victorian portraits. So what was the body of work? Describe if you'd walked into a gallery and seen this body of work. Mm-hmm. What were you looking at? Well, so I did the I did a life size portrait of my friend as a deceased Victorian maiden, <laughs> um, and I actually had her lay down flat um, for the the shoot so that like that changes you know the musculature of the face and the relaxation of the face and like the way that her hair flowed out and but the portrait was the size of the model and so that was upright and it actually took the form of kind of a curtain that hung from ceiling and it pulled onto the floor all of the other pieces in that series were they're sort of like portraits of objects or items that I related back to that character of this woman who has died a maiden you know Um, and so they might be things that other people would keep as keepsakes or that would have been collected by her before her death or that people might identify with her. Um, Some of them were very straightforward, like Memento Mori. Um, There was one that was like a lily in kind of a a canister jar uh, related to that tradition as well um and but then there's also like a clock there's a clock that's maybe maybe stopped you know Mm -hmm. at her hour of death um that maybe was in her room or um like little sort of collectible feeling objects that maybe relate to this character and so I wanted that series to be a set of things that could exist and like go into someone's collection on their own or be like identified with each you know as individual pieces but all serve this idea of memorial because of the story that I had made up about this woman who died. (laughs) So back to the idea of the process versus a product when you made this body of work you were making something that was very meaningful to you you're exploring a personal interest did did you sell anything and did you expect to sell anything? I never expect to sell anything and I'm always wrong about what it's <laughs> yeah a lot of those pieces did sell yeah and I think that they went um to people who connected with them as individual pieces like I actually think that that worked out yeah so last time you were on the show with the uh, other artists we were talking about whether the creation of a body of work leaves an artist changed so I wondered how you felt changed after you'd put the Victorian post-mortem show together hmm 
Did you feel differently about death as afterwards or how we memorialize life? I think that's always just slowly evolving for me. And I keep like waiting to get to this point in my life where I'm done thinking about memorial, nostalgia, memory, loss. Um, and I never just like quite get over that hump. And so, yeah, I think it progressed my thinking. Um, and there's no way that the next body of work will look like that body of work. Like I sort of worked that bit out and worked through my obsession with the postmortem portraiture. <laughs> and I made a lot more of those, by the way, that I didn't feel like I should show. I, I limited myself to one death portrait. But um, but that like pushed me into the next kind of interim series, and that pushes me into the next experimentation, and then that's kind of where I am now. So it, it will look different, but I think maybe, at least for the foreseeable future, it will always deal with memory loss and like how we hang on to things that are lost from the tangible world. So can you encapsulate for us what's coming up in the next body of work? Sure, yeah. Well, I'm thinking a lot about um, stitching, which is, you know, in my background as a fiber person and always involve cloth and stitching. But I'm thinking about the way in which tiny stitches in like a small scale show um, meticulous attention and show time. They show that you've put your time and attention onto and into an idea. Um, I'm also thinking about thread in kind of a conceptual way and um, like the thread of an idea or the way that threads can sort of be like tangled and maybe represent um, veins or even like viscera <laughs> um, in a way that's a little bit less morbid than maybe just painting them. So, um, so I'm exploring that and I'm, I'm actually thinking about animals and I'm thinking about, so I'm starting to depict some animal relationships like predator and prey or like cultivated animals um, because that's a place where we have an acceptance of death kind mm -hmm. of in our culture. And this is our pets getting taken pets by a predator. or like the animals that we eat. Um, and so not in... Um, not it, really relating it to human experience, not so much about the relationship between like us and our food. I know a lot of great artists work with that idea. It's more about like using um, the way we think about animal death as symbolic for how we could think about other loss and maybe giving me an avenue to be maybe a, like a little bit less morbid you know, than showing a dead person <laughs> um, and then using thread to talk about bodies and veins and guts. You know, there's always some viscera. <laughs> I'm fascinated by the idea of time, that time doesn't really exist, that it's just a human concept, that in terms of physics, time is, is not really a fixed thing. And so how you would represent that in art, I don't know, you're talking about the, the stitching as a, as a passage of time. Mm -hmm. But time isn't a real thing. Yeah, and it's like, then you are just showing it, the person seeing it in a moment later. So like on one, two, or even three-dimensional sort of surface or set of surfaces, how can you show something that time went into something that is already existing? So I am kind of, I'm thinking about that. I'm, I'm interested in it. If we were reading about the work of Hannah Reeves in an art book 100 years from now, how would you want your body of work to be remembered? Hmm. I think that any explanation would have to talk about my connection with cloth and stitching and sewing and the way that my history kind of intertwines with 
the history of women's work in my era. So I, you know, I don't consider myself confined to women's work, but I do think it's that history is kind of inextricable from what I do as a fiber artist, but also just as a woman my age in my era who was raised sewing. And I used a sewing machine before I could read, you know, and lived in a town with a sewing factory where you could get fabric scraps and everyone, you know, all of the women had at some point worked on this sewing floor, you know, there's this kind of collective and also personal history that, um, and I think when, you know, someday if someone could zoom out and think about the era, there's this kind of, um, there's this weird place that a lot of women, especially fiber artists sit now knowing and understanding and sort of wanting to honor a history of women's work and what it meant for people to, be confined to a situation where they could could only make clothing through the room or could only sit and you know domestically stitch and then utilizing that to talk about something more modern I think it's always fascinating we spend a lot of time thinking back to movements of the past whether it's color field movement or the black mountain college we've talked about or whatever era it is and to try and imagine in 50 or 100 years if somebody is writing about this era what's going to stand out because it's almost impossible mm-hmm. when you're in the era to work out what is it that's going to be meaningful in 100 years yeah that's challenging you almost probably one person can't ever do it you just have to make your stuff <laughs> right <laughs> and and hope that it fits into the paradigm in a way that is remains meaningful I guess movements are not named until later so yeah they shouldn't be (laughs) anyway (laughs) so we don't know what era we're living in so tonight is the opening night for the small work show and unlike most shows where you open at 11 a.m you're only opening at 6 Mm p.m this evening um is that is that what's going to happen going forward yeah that's going to be true going forward we're going to give ourselves the space and time to really set up for the event during the day but we've also launched new membership programs that allow people to uh, members to come by appointments and and preview the work um, during the day when it's quiet and also a member happy hour that will be you know a more private kind of quiet time to have our attention that shows our appreciation back to those members so with the launch of membership this was kind of good timing to to start the new tradition but we'll open to the public at 6 p.m. My guest today has been Hannah Reeves, the director and curator of the Sega Browdis Gallery. Their new exhibit, Small Works, features over 240 works by more than 60 artists and opens tonight from 6 till 9 and will be on display until the end of the month. Thank you, Hannah. Come again soon. Thank you so much. Always fun. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts. And before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, I have a list of arts events coming up that would like to find their way into your diaries. So tonight is First Friday in the North Village Arts District and there is plenty to see and do, some of it with air conditioning and some without. Sega Browdis Gallery opens their new July exhibit of 240 artworks that are no larger than 8x8. The small small work show opens at 6pm tonight. At Resident Arts, there is an opening reception for Madison Zahn's new exhibit called Living Room. At Talking Horse Theatre, their new improv group, The Ponies, are performing their first drop-in, drop-out show from 6 till 9, and all their first Friday shows are on a pay-what-you-can basis, so you can come and enjoy the fun no matter your budget. There's also live music out front at Outlandish Gallery and on the patio in front of Fretboard Coffee. Plus, the fried crawdaddies are on the stage at Rose Park from 5pm. In Arrow Rock, it's the last chance to see the jukebox musical All Shook Up at the Lyceum Theatre. There may be some tickets left for the evening performances tonight and tomorrow, but I believe the matinees are all sold out. And tickets are $42. 
In Macon, the Maples Rep Company has productions of the Full Monty and the Savannah Sipping Society this weekend. You can see the Full Monty at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow, as well as the 2 p.m. matinee on Sunday. Meanwhile, the Savannah Sipping Society is on stage at 2 p.m. for tomorrow's matinee, as well as the Tuesday and Wednesday matinees next week. Tomorrow morning is Slow Art Saturday at Sega Bradis Gallery from 11 till 2. Tomorrow night, the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's Hot Summer Nights presents the Texas Tennis at the Missouri Theatre at 8 p.m. And tickets for that show are $35. And at Rose Park, Mr. Mojo Rising, a celebration of the Doors shows starts at 8 p.m. tomorrow night and tickets are free. The final show of this year's Hot Summer Nights Festival will be on Sunday night when pianist Angie Zhang performs Saint-Saëns Piano Concerto No. 2 and the Missouri Symphony Orchestra plays Rachmaninoff's Symphonic Dances. The concert is an early one. It starts at 4.30 on Sunday afternoon and tickets are $35. Tuesday night, this week's Movies in the Park at Rose Park is Bohemian Rhapsody starring Remy Malek as Freddie Mercury. The film starts at 8.30 and that's free to attend. Wednesday evening at Daniel Boone Regional Library, there is a showing of the film Apollo 11, a return to July 1969 and America's Race to the Moon. This is a free screening of the film and no registration is required. The film will start at 6.30. Next Thursday, the 11th of July, is opening night for two theatrical productions in Columbia. At Maplewood Barn, Irving Berlin's White Christmas starts its three-weekend run. The show starts at 8 and tickets are $12. And finally, at the University of Missouri's Rheinsberger Theatre, Ragtime the Musical, directed by Joy Powell, takes to the stage for a two-weekend run. Evening performances start at 7, plus there are three 2 p.m. matinee performances on both Sundays as well as Wednesday the 17th. And tickets cost $16. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxett, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views, and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia.